Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Greetings and welcome to the Eastern Border. And today we have a special guest, and I'm very happy to have this conversation. Together, we are kind of united with farm stuff and Ukraine and everything. But uh, that's a bit more lighthearted introduction for Mitzi Perdue, a philanthropist, a businesswoman, a journalist, and many other things in her wonderful bio. And also, she's been donating to Ukraine and is very concerned about Ukraine. We're going to talk about the current issues later on. But uh, please, Miss Perdue, Mrs. Perdue, again, English is not my native language. Could you please tell our listeners about what have you been doing in the relation to the war? And who are you to the people who might, might, might not know about you? Well, first of all, I'm delighted to be on your show and impressed by how, how large and influential it is. So you're right, my name is Mitzi Perdue. My involvement with Ukraine began in oh, probably around July of last year. I mean, I've always been aware of Ukraine uh, and also Lithuania, Latvia, and Estonia. So uh, you know, your area of the world interests me greatly. I, I read books on it. I know a tiny bit of the history of it. But in July of last year, I'm a writer, and I'd written an article based on an interview with a man from Odessa in Ukraine. His home had been bombed into ruins and he and his wife fled from Ukraine, uh, ended up in Warsaw, and long-term he they ended up in the United States. But while he was in Warsaw, he was there for six weeks before he could get a visa to get to the United States. And while he was there, he was a businessman, relatively wealthy. He could afford a hotel for six weeks, but he began noticing how many Ukrainian women uh, didn't have money for a hotel. They were just stuck there. there. There weren't enough jobs for everybody. And he began noticing just the extraordinary number of women who ended up being trafficked. Well, I wrote about that story. I, I did my best to repeat his words and his attitude and his experience and what he observed. Well, that story was published in an American it's not exclusively American, but a large American magazine, Psychology Today. And by an extraordinary coincidence, and we're now getting into my involvement with Ukraine, by 
a, a wonderful coincidence from my point of view, a Ukrainian general, a guy whose his title of general comes from law enforcement. He's in the police, but he's head of the Kiev region police, 6,400 people under him. So, you know, he's, he's pretty high up there. He had written his master's thesis on human trafficking. And pretty soon I'm on a Zoom call with Ukraine, which is pretty amazing to me sitting here in America. Uh, here I am talking with a guy from Ukraine who invites me to come see for myself what I'd written about. Well, <laughs> something like 10 days later, I travel to by plane to Warsaw and then pretty much by car uh, to the border. And then I'm met by members of the police and I end up in Kiev. And I completely fell in love with everybody I met in Ukraine. Uh, I was dazzled by the courage, the patriotism, the, the, the willingness to give your life for what you believe in. And so that began my, my time of falling deeply in love with Ukraine and wanting to do everything that I could to help. And in the time since, I've had 20 stories published. I bet I've been on 70 podcasts. And sometimes I even give three talks a day. Yesterday, I gave three talks in one day on Ukraine. So I'm all in. Oh, wow. That's a, this is a great honor to have you. I'm I, I'm just too busy doing just reporting about the war. I'm, we're not hosting that interviews uh, lately, but uh, yeah, my story is quite similar about how to enter Ukraine. By the way, my first trip was to Odessa, which is a wonderful city. And if you haven't been there, you should definitely go and visit some point. I've seen pictures of it, but I bet they're all different now. Well, sadly, sadly they are. However, about the trafficking situation, do you speak with uh, with relatives of the women who were involved or, or who suffered from this, or what was the kind of the end conclusion of this? Okay, the end conclusion of it is I I badly wanted to do something, and I I happen to own a precious and historic object. It's an emerald from a treasure ship from 400 years ago. And the treasure ship, it was a Spanish treasure ship. And on board this treasure ship was one of the world's larger perfect emeralds. And my husband gave it to me. Oh, and oh, by the way, he, he was one of the backers that helped find the sunken treasure ship. And one of his rewards for being a financial backer was this large perfect emerald. Well, my husband died in 2005 and I mean, this, this may sound strange, but it's the truth. While he was alive during our 17 years of marriage, I, I wore the emerald every single day in a ring. But after he died, this ring was so rare and so historically important that I was always afraid to wear it. You know, what if, what if I lost it? What if I broke it or something? So I kept it in a safe. All right. Now I mentioned that that I that I visited Kiev and and I also yeah. visited Chernobyl and Lviv and Bucha and, and Irpin and a whole lot of other places because I've been there a total of ten days. I wanted to do something about basically the horrors that I saw that the Russians were inflicting on an innocent people, and it occurred to me that this ring that because it was historic and because it's a perfect emerald that it, it might raise some money for Ukraine. I put it up for auction on December 7th of last year, and to my astonishment and delight, uh, two things happened. It became a worldwide story. I've got newspaper clippings from Tokyo, from Spain, from South America, and the thing sold for $1.2 million. So suddenly, 
I have $1.2 million that I can use to benefit the people of Ukraine. And if it interests our audience, I'll share what I did with it. Yes, that would be that would be uh, very interesting because, yeah, wow, must have been quite difficult for you to also let go of this ring, but just amazing. Well, do you know what? People have asked me if it was difficult. And the answer is, looking back on my life, and I'm 82 years old, in my 82 years, I don't think there's ever been anything that's given me more satisfaction and just a good feeling than giving away the ring. Because although it was my most precious possession, it was a gift from my beloved husband, but he was a philanthropist. And I know that he would approve of the use of it. And yeah, what does more good to help, possibly to help thousands of, of trafficked women, including preventing trafficking, but I also put a fair amount of it into things that would help people get through the winter, like thousands of flashlights or small individual generators or warm clothing. And then again, something that, I'm, that I, th- I think turns out to be, I hope, really beneficial and useful. The Russians, they have a playbook for when they invade a country or when they're at war with a country. And I don't think it's generally known in the West. Maybe you who are closer to it know what I'm about to say. But the Russian playbook, one of the first things they do, I mean, it's not the first thing, but among the first things they do when they're invading a country is they do everything they can to destroy law enforcement. They bomb police stations. They they either steal or destroy the cars. When they can, they get the databases to learn who are policemen, and then they go out and murder them. And they do this, you know, it's the Russian playbook in every, I believe it's eight countries that they've been at war with since 1991. And I also discovered that there's only four years that they haven't been at war with somebody or other. Okay, so they've got this playbook of undermining or crippling or destroying law enforcement. And I asked the head of the Kiev region police, his name is General Andrei Nebitov. I asked him, why do they do this? Why do the Russians do this? And he said, it's a very deliberate plan. It's a way of demoralizing people. And the Russians feel that the demoralized people are easier to control. And so that's why in my times in Ukraine, uh, I bet I've seen, I bet I've seen seven bombed police stations or bombed training centers. And now back to where money from my ring went. Yeah, I, I, I'd just like to add that um, we, we've spoken about this, but it's not just police. It is also everyone who works in any uniform whatsoever, including fire services and other state officials. Sadly, yeah, they uh, they just target governmental institutions. And of course, first and foremost, the police. Yeah, I mean, I was the guest of the police, so I know an awful lot more about police than I know about fire. But I, I totally get that if you want to demoralize the people, if you just want to make life horrible, how about you empty the prisons and you let loose the the worst people. And then it's like a double psychological blow to people to one case that I know about, uh, a woman who had a small electronics shop. She sold things like iPhones or, or smartphones anyway. You know, the bad guys came and simply cleared her out and she had nobody she could call. You know, that, that was the end of her ability to support herself. You know, that's got to be so demoralizing. So here's where where some of the money from my ring went. So far, it's bought 18 police cars. 
Some of it's going to go to communications equipment for police. And then something that I, in a million years, I wouldn't have thought of, uh, but they requested it and there was money to do it, uh, five police boats. And it turns out that if you're in law enforcement, there are a number of reasons why you why you need boats. And the boats that, that the police had, at least in the Kiev region, uh, they were... I'm not sure whether it was donated or taken by, by the military. And so suddenly a whole aspect of, of law enforcement that was really important vanished. So the money so far, it's paid for 18 cars and five police boats. It makes sense about the boats. After all, Dnieper River is huge and there's a lot of travel going on, on there. And yeah, sadly, this also this also shows how... People are were scrambling and how there's a lot of chaos in organizing everything. But wow, this is extremely inspiring. I do have to say thank you for for all of this. Well, as I as I said a moment ago, in my 82 years, I've never done anything that's made me feel more that I did the right thing. And back to the question, was it painful to give away my most precious possession? It would have been if it was to give it for, I don't know, something unimportant. But this feels as important as it gets. I mean, something that I as one person could do. Oh, I, I, I do it a hundred times over. And oh, but that's not the end of the story. I have started a crowdfunding effort to help with clearing mines from Ukraine. Right now, Ukraine is the most heavily mined country in the world. 10% of, of the area of Ukraine, particularly the most productive agricultural land, is mined. And that means the very specific statistic, it, it comes from last December, so it's probably worse right now. But the Russians systematically destroy agricultural property. They've got these mine launching rockets where one truck might have 50 rocket launching tubes. And by the way, I don't know if it's 50. I tried to count and that's the best I could get. Um, I think it's 50 tubes. And then inside each of these rocket tubes, there can be 75 landmines. So, uh, I would like to comment about landmines. Uh, dear listeners, a lot of them are also made from plastic and are kind of tiny. They are designated to basically um, rip a part of your leg off so that you would you know, lose your leg below the ankle. And they're very hard to detect with metal detectors. And I've also heard that they particularly target like playgrounds. Yes. Uh, yes. Or, or places where children will play because... Oh, that is true because when I was doing my, my own report in Bucha Nirpin uh, at that time... The local sappers, I think, the the guys who make sure bombs don't explode, they went house to house, um, kind of making disabling the bombs. And in one of those houses, I saw just a um, a fishing line attached to a grenade and put in a shoe. And I just asked them, "Hey, why would they, you know, put mines in there so stupidly that they're easily to see?" But the response just shocked me because. Uh, Boleslav just looked at me and said, it's not for you, it's for kids. Oh, oh, oh. You know, I know it's true, but it's still shocking. I mean, the pure evilness. And I understand that uh, as far as I know, that it goes back at least to Afghanistan, who knows where before, but that it's a tactic to go after children and not to kill them. But like one of the butterfly mines, which I think is about the size of the palm of your hand, if it's covered with a few leaves or pine needles or something, you don't see it unless you're looking at it. 
If, if you weigh more than 20 pounds and you step on this thing, it probably won't kill you, but it will take your foot off. You're going to be maimed for life. And that means, you know, they say this isn't a playground and it hits a child. That means that one of the that child's parents is going to be out of commission as far as uh, fighting the war or being economically productive working in the factory or something. Somebody, it they don't just take out the child, they take out the parent. Yeah, yeah and it's... It reminds me of um, of their civil war tactics. It's kind of taken from Bolsheviks or the whites. This kind of thing. First time I've I've seen something like this mentioned was back when in 1917 when they fought their own very extremely brutal civil war. But I suppose that's the tradition by this point. Very sadly. And then I'm I'm reading a book right now. It's called Bloodlands. And it tells about some of the cruelty of the Russians, but also the Germans. Of course, I know Timothy Snyder's Bloodlands. Yes! I, I live in Latvia. <laughs> oh, I mean, the chapter that I'm reading right now is, um, I'll pronounce it wrong, but the Holodomor? How do you pronounce oh, it? Uh, Holodomor. Yes, we've, um, we made an episode about this back when we were um, still a history podcast. But that's one of the most horrific tragedies that uh, Eastern Europe has faced. Yeah, and I'm thinking as an American, you know, we're, we're ashamed of things that happened in our past, but I'm unaware of anything that was that extensive and that deliberate and that recent. I, I guess the closest thing you would have to a massive tragedy would be civil war. <laughs> but hey, my, my, my show started out when I was trying to explain our region to Americans and pay at least as far as I know, well, some people have learned and that's great. Well, you know, when, when I talk about things that, that I've seen in, well, in Irpin or Bucha, uh, or when I talk about landmines and I often give talks uh, yesterday, it was three different talks. It was to school children from ages four to uh, 18, three different groups. That's, that's to say that I often give talks, but when I'm talking with, with adults, some of them just have absolutely no idea that such cruelty could exist. They can't process the idea that there's such evil. I mean, what I'd explain about landmines and, well, for example, making it impossible to farm, they'd say, but why would anybody do that? What benefit would it be? They don't, they just uh, don't get cruelty. This is the part which um, I've explained in a short episode of mine, but it'll be useful to explain this to both uh, maybe people who will come and listen to the show because of you, to my own audience. You see, uh, you can't approach Putin from the sense of someone benefiting. He has a very alien mentality to the Western leader, to the Western person. He does not care about honest deals. He comes from this Russian organized crime mentality. He thinks like a crime boss. It's basically like a cartel with their own rules, laws, values, and everything. And they have a very kind of sophisticated prison culture, an organized crime culture in Russia. And he considers that to be valuable. To him, there is no win-win. There is no deal. There is only the person who's getting scammed and the honorable thief. That's it. They live by their own prison laws. And he, well, after his stint with KGB, well, in the 90s, well, he was in the organized crime and he comes from that cultural sphere. And that's never even gone anywhere. When he speaks in Russian, well, 
a lot of people in the West don't even properly how to translate his sayings, but he uses prison organized crime slang constantly. So just the very idea that you should approach Putin from the perspective of figuring what he wants, yeah, don't do that. He's doing things in the way that he thinks is normal, according to his value systems. But yeah, I highly recommend people who understand Putin, listen to our episode about organized crime in Russia, or just Google up something about Bratva or things like that. I thought this was important because I've been dealing with the same kind of people that you just mentioned. And this is what I kind of want to understand, yeah. As an American, and as an American who, I'm a little bit of a public figure. I mean, I, I do give lots of talks. Um, I'm really excited that I'll be talking at Harvard in a couple of months, Harvard University. I've been there once as well, by the way. Yay. Well, I'm, I'm going to give a guess and I'm prepared to be wrong. In fact, I'm very likely to be wrong, but my impression, just sort of top of the head, how it feels, I feel as if 99% of Americans have no idea of that other people don't think like us, that Putin just is, they want to sit down and reason with him. Uh, that's like sitting down and reasoning with the mafia. Nope, it's about power. Exactly. I want to hedge more of what I said when I said I think 99% of Americans don't get it. I mean, maybe it's 50%, but I'll, I'm certain that it's a lot. Oh, definitely. Then again, there's also a lot of things here in, in Eastern Europe that we should learn from you. From my travels, I've noticed that uh, Ukraine's going to have a lot of trouble with um, entrepreneurship and small businesses and stuff like that. People in Eastern Europe, well, we also trust each other less. It's because of our Soviet history and public denunciations and, you know, how KGB spies were everywhere. So it's just different cultures. We're different people. And the most important part is that we, you know, try to communicate and understand each other. Yeah, you know, I may be daydreaming or smoking something, but I have the feeling that wh when I talk with people in Ukraine, uh, that there's, I guess because I admire their patriotism and their courage so much, I feel that we, that we relate to each other. In a very short time, I forget that I'm talking with somebody from a different culture. I, I just feel we have enough in common in this common opposition to evil. The, the values of, of humanity are united here. Yeah. I, I'm pretty sure I wouldn't get that feeling if I were talking with Mr. Putin. Oh, well, which Mr. Putin? That is also an important question because at this point, I'm fairly certain he uses body doubles at the very least. That he's, say that again? He uses body doubles, almost certainly. Really? Tell me about that because I've heard rumors, but, but nobody who other than can just say, mm, must be. Well, Do you think? My episode 21, like five years ago, was just about this. And after I made this episode, yeah, that's when I started getting phone calls at night and death threats and all other nice things. But uh, basically, he's very paranoid. He uh, writes his speeches and he pre-records them. Everything is canned and... Uh, he doesn't even allow journalists to approach him because of COVID uh, security things. Journalists during the COVID era were forced to sit two weeks in quarantine, totally isolated. And you've seen the huge table that he greets people with. Now, person who is that paranoid and doesn't let anyone come even close to him. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. 
You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Would he really go and do public speeches in front of crowds or something? Everyone in Russia, including opposition people, almost nobody thinks that the Putin who is sitting in his bunker and the Putin who appears in public, that there would be the same person. Well, the biggest proof we got was when he, about two years ago, managed to fly from Sevastopol to Vladivostok in about an hour or so. Oh, I don't think so. Uh, it's physically impossible. Yeah. I mean, it's pro- what is that, a 10-hour flight? Well, even if we presume that they use some sort of ultra mega jet something, even then... But it is what it is. But then then they must be very skilled actors because he does a lot of speaking. And the reason I think I know this is because uh, I, I feel as if I've seen him on YouTube constantly. Oh, yeah, he, he does that. But um, he also is supposed to know German. It's which? He, he knows German, the original Putin. But uh, whenever you see a Putin that is lagging with his German skills, that's a fake one. Because he used to work in East Germany for the KGB. So he's fully fluent in German. And you'll notice in a lot of interviews that um, he suddenly forgets how to speak German at all. Oh, my goodness. Well, then that brings up the question that, that oh, good Lord, wouldn't I love an answer to this. Uh, His health. I mean, if he's really in in trouble and I, I... I read all these rumors about that he's followed around by a cancer doctor. Yeah, that's uh, they're all coming from one Vladimir Solovey, and he's been saying this for ten years now. Oh. We made an episode about this. Putin is very health conscious. However, I don't, I don't really think that he's that physically ill at this point. He's definitely worried about his own power struggles inside, especially since. He has to now to figure out what to do with uh, Prigozhin and Ramzan Kadyrov from Chechnya and uh, his own criminals running around the country since uh, six months past. Now about 5,000 dangerous criminals who have now learned how to use guns have been let loose in Russia. I mean, sometimes I just feel that this whole planet is going insane and all we can do is try to make, make it a better place as best we can. Um. I'm influenced by Mother Teresa, the saint, who said, it's immoral to be discouraged by the magnitude of a problem 
the good that we can do, we must do. So I figure, I'm, I'm assuming that you can't, and I know I can't solve a lot of big problems, but still we do what we can. We do what we can. <laughs> There's no other option, at least for me. It is something that um, I feel like I must do, and I feel it's quite similar to you as well. Here's one great big roaring difference between us. Um, I'm going to guess that I'm a great deal older than you. I'm 82, and is your age a secret? Uh, I'm 33. Okay, I would. I, you know what? I could have guessed that. I would have guessed that, but I didn't want to insult you in case that you're really 50 or something. Oh, no, no. But at 82, I have so much freedom that you don't have because I don't have anybody dependent on me. I, I have grandchildren, but but they're going to be taken care of by my children. Uh, there's, I, I can take risks. Uh, like, I, I don't consider it a huge risk to, to go to Ukraine, but I am going back in late spring, and I'm going to mine clearing school. Uh, there, there's something called the Halo Trust that it already has something approaching a thousand people who do mine clearing there. And they have a school, and I'm going to attend it. Oh, excellent! But but I don't mind taking risks because at 82, I mean, I would I would dearly like to live to 100. But you know, if if it's time for me to go, I'd, I'd rather go quickly than lingering in in a nursing home or something. Well, that, that's one way how to put it. But mind clearing school, yeah, I wish you all the best in the mind clearing school. Well, I'll tell you what I know about the mind clearing school. Those guys are so smart and they know so much. I, I, I suspect I'm in more trouble in a New York City subway than I am uh, at mind clearing school. Quite likely because, yeah, the, the soldiers fighting there and everyone in Ukraine, it's even hard for me to tell this to people through a podcast form, but there is truly a sense that they are giving their all nonstop, 24-7, every day, completely. Well, I want to give, you know, 82, the years that remained me, I want to give it my all, because this is this is a class of civilizations. Uh, are, are we going to have people who care about other human beings? Are we going to have mafia types? I, I think it's also put on by the whole political situation in the world. However, Putin has lost even his own closest allies, so at least there's that. There are very few people who would openly support him. Oh, and, and I heard something absolutely wonderful from somebody I admire a whole lot on YouTube. His name is Peter Zion. Oh. Are you aware of him? Yes, of course. Oh, I, not everybody is. But, but this morning he was talking about how Russia and China had this great appearance of liking each other and supporting each other strategically. But Peter Zion points out that like a couple of days later, Chairman Xi has invited people on Russia's southern border uh, near the Caucasus, the Urals, to come to a meeting in which Russia's left out. And Peter Zion points out this has got to drive Putin crazy because, you know, he's always scared of, of, of having alliances against him. And here's China leaving him out of the discussions. Uh, Peter Zion thinks if I'm interpreting him right, the closeness of Russia and China isn't very great. Well, it really isn't, since Russia considers most of southern Russia its own territory. 
and they're using corrupt local governors to rent forests and Siberian forests, these huge ones, and land below them and all the resources there for uh, 99 years for $2 per square kilometer per year. So vastness of Siberia being cut down, sent to China. Hello there, and thanks for listening to another episode of The Eastern Border. Dear Patreons, thank you more than ever for supporting our show. Your donations are crucial to keep us going, and right now all of your money is going to securing good information for you and to fund Kristov's actual real-life mission to Ukraine to report to you live about the war that is going on there. Also, we would like to use this opportunity to urge you to donate to other organizations that are helping people escape Ukraine safely and to defend the country for those who decide to stay on the ground. One such organization we would like to highlight is the Defending Ukraine Together Come Back Alive movement. Launched in 2014, the Come Back Alive became the biggest organization providing support to the armed forces of Ukraine. You can donate directly from their webpage, comebackalive.in.ua. Remember that no donation is too small. In this situation, every dollar matters, every cent matters. If you're uncomfortable with giving money to war, they do have a position on their website that they are providing Ukrainian army with laptops, lights, photo equipment, cables, and is not purely military. Perhaps that might change your mind, but remember you can also donate to strictly humanitarian organizations such as the Red Cross and others that are helping people escape Ukraine safely. Please also keep following us on social media for all of your latest updates on Eastern Border on places like Twitter and Facebook. Keep listening, keep yourself informed. That's all from me now. See you online. Also, another thing about their close relationships. <laughs> Remember how Putin just yesterday, I think, uh, stated that he wants to put nukes in Belarus? Yeah, afterwards, he got a call from Z because that's very much against China's policy. It's, it's just... All a mess sometimes. Or if I were Putin, I think I'd be worrying more about China than the U.S. Because he's got a long, indefensible border with China. He has things that China really wants, like Vladivostok used to be Chinese, but in the Opium War of 1865, uh, Russia just took it. China would like it back. It's it's a real a, a real irritant. Uh, or Lake Baikal. It's the largest. I think it's the largest freshwater lake system in the world. Yes, and, and the most and deepest one. And there are currently eight whole factories dumping there everything there. Uh, China's having a hundred-year drought right now. They would love to be able to get water piped in from Lake Baikal. And Russia's been resisting this. I could imagine China or Chairman Xi saying, "You know, Mr. Putin." Uh, it's really good that we're partners, and, and as part of our partnership, I want Lake Baikal's water now. <sighs> if only Russian people could that own Lake Baikal water. Like I said, they have a ton of various catastrophes, technological ones that uh, aren't very well reported. At one point they, in their Pacific coast, in Vladivostok, there were a local surfboard club. And a bunch of them got chemical burns by just surfing out there because there was a huge leak of 
chemical weapons from a nearby military base and it just polluted about uh, 20 miles of coast and everything was just dead there. Oh my God. That's the situation. And this is what I also speak about on my podcast. This is more to the new people who come here. It's just that there's a lot of... There's an image that Russia tries to portray via their propaganda media and there's actual Russia, which is not even Moscow. It's just surreal parallel reality and like you said this is the class of civilization between those who want to make something good happen and those who want to continue pay taxes to put in who then steals all of them it's you know again it's 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 hard for me an american to just grasp that that somebody would have values so antithetical to human happiness well it kind of is because currently Russia tries to portray itself as an anti-America. Basically, they um, they look at whatever Alex Jones or some other conspiracy theorist person says about America. Then they presume that's true, and then they kind of um, try to portray themselves as an anti-America. Well, do you know there's there's one thing that that he says that sort of resonates with people. A lot of people that I know, which is, you know, I, I know he's lying, but nevertheless it appeals. Where he talks about, you know, the strength of the family and religion, and you know, a whole lot of things that are appealing to us. I mean, I'm not big on transgenderism um, or not knowing the difference between a man and a woman. Uh, I mean, and he portrays that as degenerate, and I'm left thinking, good Lord, what if I'm agreeing with Putin in something? Well, <laughs> a position I don't want to be in. Let, let me tell you that for, for the Russians, well, their Orthodox Church is led by an ex-KGB colonel, Mr. Gundyayev, who was literally sent in by the KGB to report on the church activities, because that was quite illegal. Uh, he owns three super yachts and uh, is quite probably the most corrupt priest in human history. Uh, on the same level with Borges. So, by the way, I'm getting I'm getting a clue as to why you have such a huge influential audience. Boy, do you have interesting tidbits. <laughs> well, yeah, <laughs> my, my show is that, and then news, <laughs> and. Uh, well, sometimes I get interesting people like you on the show because trust me on this one, 99% of my listeners probably have never even spoken to someone who can donate a historical emerald to Ukraine. And it's a very interesting perspective. Well, actually, uh, to be honest, I kind of shocked myself that I could do this because I don't have a whole lot of those things lying around, trust me. Oh, and uh, of course, please... Uh, email me the link of the of the crowdfunding thing. We will, of course, support it and popularize it, and hope and hopefully we can make something happen. Okay, and let me tell you one one sort of message for our listeners, which is I'm really happy with a five dollar donation. If somebody wants to give more, yay! But something that I love is that I can report to people that I visit in Ukraine uh, that people. Well, so far it's been reporting that people in the West are supporting them, but I want a, a long list of names. So far, I think it's oh, well. The goal is three hundred thousand, and we're at about a hundred thousand. But I would far prefer to get to two hundred thousand in five dollar increments than one person giving a hundred thousand. Just because the more people who support it, the more the more I can report. When I'm in Ukraine, 
I, I get to be on radio, television, and newspaper. And the reason why is uh, I'm told that many people followed that auction. I'm told there were even auction wa- watching parties when the Emerald sold. Uh, and to repeat, $1.2 million. So when the, the last time I was in Ukraine, I could be in some random place and somebody would come up to me and you know thank me. So when I return for the mind clearing school, I'll have a chance to talk about how many people are supporting Ukraine a few dollars at a time or a few hundred dollars at a time. Well, well as I'm planning my own return trip to Ukraine, uh, I should have been there already, but sadly, my contact in there in the military, uh, he sadly died in the car crash. Sorry, a helicopter crash with the Ministry of Ministry of Interior and everything. Oh so dear! Oh dear! Oh dear! But to- please do keep in touch uh, because hey, it would be really interesting to film you and interview you in in, in the mind clearing school, if possible. <laughs> it's totally possible because. The Halo Mind Clearing School, uh, they would love more attention for this. And I think part of the reason why they were willing just to have me come, who's not going to be a mind clearer for, for real, but to, to write about it, I think, I think they're really pleased that, that somebody does want to do this and write about it. So I think the more attention they get, the better. Partly for yeah. their fundraising. And about, but like, you reminded me about the Western press, and this will be interesting for you. Uh, do you remember the very first day when Putin gave his speech about uh, how he recognizes Donbass and how Ukraine is fake and all that? Yeah. Well, I was watching it that evening, and I got a message from Foreign Policy magazine. Apparently, uh, their guys were listening to the speech and making a translation, and I got an email saying... Uh, our translators probably don't understand something culturally. Christops, until 6 a.m., please make an article. And so I did. And and after that, I understood that it, it wasn't the fault in their translators. It's just that the speech didn't make no sense back then and still doesn't make any sense now. Wow. Gosh, what a position you are in this world. Congratulations. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a lot of work, to be honest. It's important work. I'm just doing what I can. I am nowhere near as important or influential as you are, uh, but I'm just trying my best. I, okay, my, my philosophy of life is we do our best and we can't do more than our best. So that's it. <laughs> Hopefully. Do you intend to uh, visit someplace in Ukraine after the war is over and the rebuilding process starts? Because we're making a party in Odessa with journalists and everyone. You are, of course, invited. Oh, oh I mean, I'll, I'm ready to commute to Ukraine. I love the place so much. Or, or you know, love in the sense of that I feel committed because here are people who are fighting for everything good and decent. Yeah, they're generally trying. Yeah, and it doesn't bother me to sit in a plane and mostly I sleep, but otherwise I've got my laptop and I'm working, so I don't care. Well, then we will definitely keep in touch. Oh, I love it. Oh, I'm thrilled. Thank you. I accept. Well, then I'm going to have to add my list and manage manage all that stuff later as well. Perfect. And, and I will email you the donorsc.com Ukraine. Yes, yes. Please send me that email. Well, it's been an honor to be on and I've, I've loved every second. Well, it's been an honor to have, have you on. And please, if you do any charity work or do you want any any charity work, 
better known by the West, please let me know and I will do my best to help you. Thank you. Well, my heart is in mind clearing right now. Yeah, and um, that is what important because when I was last time there, I was in Mykolaiv and I interviewed people who are taking care of uh, removing mines and, and, and all those things. And well, there's enough of children and their parents being just mutilated and and all the suffering just needs to end. Yeah, I feel that with mines that every dollar or every amount of money I don't know, peso, whatever, uh, that, that goes towards mind clearing is, is a child who won't have their life disrupted by losing a foot. You know, I, when we make charitable donations, we want them to be consequential and to matter. And boy, getting rid of minds matters. Yeah, I've been to, been to Serbia and Bosnia as well, and they had their own terrible war in the early 2000s. And there I saw a museum dedicated to landmine victims. So I can assure you, removing landmines is a worthy goal. Well, I'm giving it everything that I know how to give. (laughs) Thank you so much. I wish you'd invite me back when I come back from mine clearing school. Oh, of course we will. Perfect. Great. And and we'll meet in, was it Odessa? In Odessa, definitely. Perfect. Till then. Yeah. Yeah. Till then. And thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to The Eastern Border Show. If you have any questions or comments, go to our website, theeasternborder.lv, and leave a comment there. Or email us at theeasternborder at gmail.com. We'll be sure to answer. You can also follow us on social media and contact us there. If you enjoyed this episode, then leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and tell your friends about us. It really helps us grow the show. And remember, happiness is mandatory. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.